Welcome to the Code Life podcast with me, Nathan Blackaby, my great mate, Carl Beach. Hello, mate. Hello, mate. I'm going to read from the book SAS Rogue Heroes. Great book. It is good. Amazing book. It is good. It is the authorised wartime history from the secret SAS archives. Yeah. I love it. Absolutely that. amazing. Ben McIntyre. Yeah. Fabulous. Rogue Heroes. Chapter 3. Of the new recruits to the SAS, none would be more important or harder to reel in than Jock Lewis, the hard-minded and determined, demanding Welsh Guards officer whose ideas about raiding behind the lines mirrored and partly inspired Sterling's own. Talking about David Sterling, founder of the SAS. Yeah. While Sterling was coaxing and charming the generals at Middle East headquarters, Luz had been fighting a series of bloody skirmishes in besieged Tobruk, Tobruk, one of the most active and unpleasant battlefronts of the North African War. The vital port was still in British hands, accessible by sea, but encircled to the south by German and Italian forces, which kept up a steady bombardment. On the 18th of July 1941, Luz led a night raid on the Italian lines, attacking two rocky outcrops known as the Twin Pimples. More than 50 enemy soldiers were killed, and Luz wrote ecstatically of winkling out the wretched wop from his entrenchments with the bayonet or rolling in the hand grenades when he lay low. I mean, so basically, these guys, they're hand to hand. They go, you know, it's winkling out the wop. I'd never heard he of basically, that. He's talking about like some <clears throat> kind of colonial sport. Okay. Just going to go in and clear out the enemy. Yeah, Let's yeah. roll in a hand grenade and yeah. you know, stab Winkle them. out the enemy. Yeah. Lou's returned to his. Uh, returned to his own lines only to be told to go back and take a prisoner which he did capturing a luckless Italian soldier who had left his dugout to defecate Luz dragged him into camp with his trousers still round his ankles I mean these blokes were full on weren't they full on no messing about no Back to the book. They made they made they made a different stuff. Oh oh yeah and that's what we're gonna explore here which is which is exciting as part of the theme Luz seemed to revel in the discomfort, the heat, the flies, the acute boredom punctuated by episodes of extreme violence and raging adrenaline. Mm. Every other night, a small force of commandos would venture into no man's land, navigating through minefields and across barbed wire. He says, I did most of the patrolling, wrote Luz, as desert sores, dysentery and the unspeakable squalor rendered most of the officers temporarily unserviceable a solitary steely figure he was deeply admired by his comrades he was by far the most daring of us all wrote one yet he was remote from them a single-minded predator he had little need of comradeship i mean it's a brute isn't he yeah Yeah. jock loose it's just like i'm out there yeah and a lot of these guys you see they they used to get in trouble in peacetime or in regular units yeah they've been disciplined you know as you read through the book about some of these characters they're in military prison and yeah and then like they came across sterling and it's like he, he wanted those guys yeah he wanted the mavericks and the misfits yeah yeah that's good yeah let me let me just go back to the book this is uh this is a little bit about sterling recruiting jock at the end of August, Luz returned to Egypt for some desperately needed rest. Sterling found him laying in bed, an absolute wreck, and therefore unable to escape Sterling's appeals. 
It was a neat reversal of the earlier meeting when Sterling had been immobilised. I could really get at him, observed Sterling, <laughs> who proceeded to deploy every argument he could muster to convince Luz that his future lay with the SAS. Finally, Luz cracked and agreed to come on board as chief instructor of L Detachment and Sterling's deputy. Wow. The two men would never become close friends. We got on well enough, said Sterling, a tepid commendation from a man who got on famously with almost everyone. They had very little in common, but their very dismilitary would, would be a crucial source of unity and strength. Lou's first contribution to L Detachment was to bring with him some of the toughest soldiers in the British Army. Men whose abilities he had witnessed at first hand during the commando raids around Tobruk. I like this stuff. So Jock Lewis is like this renegade, this misfit, this kind of solitary figure who's he's not afraid of hardship and getting out there and climbing across barbed wire. And he's recruited by Sterling. Interestingly, Sterling on the, online it says that he he would suggest or he did suggest that Lewis was probably more of the founder of the SAS than he actually was but you know David Sterling is recognised to be the founder anyway this is going to pick us up again I'm going to read a little bit more uh, this is about the recruits and the process of recruiting these guys and, what, and the sort of guys they were looking for and what I want to tease out of this is this renegade spirit but more than that it's a pioneer spirit yeah. that we're going to explore and talk about in this podcast back to the book a few recruits were approached by Sterling in person during training in Scotland. He had taken note of a private in the Scots Guard named Johnny Cooper. The most immediately striking thing about Cooper was that he looked barely old enough to be a Boy Scout, let alone a soldier. He came from a middle-class Leicester family and had been educated at grammar school, where his most notable achievement had been to play the part of Robin Hood opposite Dickie Attenborough's Maid Marian in the school play. Soon after the outbreak of war, at the age of 17, he quit an apprenticeship in the wool trade and bribed a recruiting sergeant to swallow the obvious lie that he was 20. Hmm. Cooper was slightly built with a thin face and piercing eyes. His boyish looks belied a remarkable strength of will and almost unnerving resilience. He neither smoked nor drank, and he endured the demands of training, the pain of dysentery and the passage to the Middle East and the monotonous inactivity in the desert without a murmur of complaint. Mm. Cooper was made of some light but tough material that seemed able to endure any kind of stress without breaking. Do you want to do something special? Sterling asked him. Yes, said Cooper, without pausing to ask what special might involve. He was not yet 19, the youngest recruit to this newborn unit. Sterling made a point of interviewing every man who volunteered. Many were rejected, for he had formed a clear idea of what sort of men he would need. Commandos were already some of the most highly trained soldiers in the army, but he was looking for something more profound and rarer, an ability to think and react independently individuality and self-reliance are not always highly prized in the army mm. indeed many officers profess prefer soldiers to do exactly what they are told without question or indeed thought but sterling 
was insistent that this unit would not be composed of biddable yes men. I always hoisted on board guys who argued, says Sterling. The men would also have to be willing to kill at close quarters and not merely for the sake of killing. I don't I didn't want psychopaths, he insisted. Well, and some of them were. Yeah, some of them were. <laughs> yeah. Sterling then was seeking a set of qualities that are not often found together. Fighters who were exceptionally brave but just short of irresponsible. <laughs> it's good, isn't it? Yeah, just short of irresponsible. Yeah. Disciplined but also independent minded. Mm-hmm. Uncomplaining, unconventional, mm-hmm. and when necessary, merciless. Yeah. <laughs> That's brutal, isn't it? Yeah. Th- those were the men he was looking for. Yeah. I remember one story, just yeah. as an aside, where yeah. one of the guys, I've forgotten his name, uh, one of the guys threw a hand grenade into a, a building for the German airmen, <laughs> killed them all, mm. and Sterling was unhappy because he said it was unnecessary death so they were ruthless but he didn't like unnecessary death he didn't like the psychopath yeah but some of them were yeah that's that's in this book actually I think Mm, that that story he was unhappy back to the book people who simply wanted a change of routine were dismissed out of hand it is no good men volunteering for this type of work just for the novelty Sterling believed he even listed the traits he sought courage fitness and determination in the highest degree but also just as important discipline skill intelligence and training there's something there actually just as an aside yeah. about building teams intentionally of people that you want yeah he wrote down what he wanted yeah there's a leadership thing there if you're building a team write down the qualities of the people you want and go after those people yeah. define the characteristics yeah. it's an interesting lesson there yeah, yeah. in leadership in them yeah be clear about who you want. Yeah, I'm ruthless about it. Mm. That's what I want. Mm. Yeah. Back to the book. Inevitably, Sterling's band attracted distinctive characters, as well as some very strange ones, mm. and a few who were positively dangerous. Independent-minded soldiers, as Sterling was about to learn, are not always easily controlled. It's interesting, isn't it? He's put this team together of renegades, misfits, and some are explosive, some are, you know, unhinged fellas. Yeah. But they're out there and they're getting a job done. Yeah. It's powerful. Everyone finds their place. Yeah. They didn't fit in conventional units. No. Like, people in the wrong place come across as less than what they are truly what they truly are people in the wrong fit in the wrong yeah, roles you come across but you come across as disproportionately less than what you are if right. you're in the radically wrong fit right because it all collapses around it's interesting yeah. yeah so you can get a very low view of someone but they could be highly gifted yeah They're just in, in the wrong, wrong fit, wrong, wrong fit. Yeah. I'm gonna gonna read a bit more and then we'll we'll have a chat around it and but this is interesting this this pulls us into this pioneer spirit these renegades so they've been setting up a camp. Uh, they raided some other soldiers and took all their stuff and yeah. <laughs> are basically just out there doing their thing. As the mini camp took place, Jock Lou set about devising a training program of Spartan rigor, a regime so severe that many came close to quitting, which was, of course, exactly what Lou's wanted the quitters to do. Mm. Lou's intention was to create a force capable of landing in the desert and then operating there for far longer than anyone else had attempted before. Yeah. 
Training began almost immediately in explosives first aid, including amputation in the field, radio operation, and observation of enemy aircraft. Yeah. Navigation was, vi- was of vital importance, given, that, uh, given the vast and all but fe- featureless terrain. There was training in map reading, compass use, and celestial navigation. Luz instituted intensive weapon drills using Thompson machine guns and Webley pistols. Much of the training was conducted at night. During the day, the same operations would be carried out by blindfolded men, so the others could observe the way men move and react in nighttime conditions. Sounds fascinating, isn't it? Mm. Luz also framed a program of memory training to enable the filling of accurate intelligence reports and initiative tests to see which men responded well to unexpected situations. They were even set homework to do in their tents, which had to be handed in the next morning. Luz's marches were a particularly telling example of the man's constructive brutality. <coughs> Luz began a series of route marches across the desert, starting from 11 miles, working up to 100 miles with full load, while gradually reducing the water ration. In order to work out how far a man could walk in the desert, Luz first tested himself. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah. He would set off alone, transferring a stone from one pocket to the other every hundred paces and calculating the result overall distance on the basis that one stone was equal to 83 yards. Since he was covering huge distances, this created the added burden of slogging through the sand with his pockets full of stones. The men were permitted to carry water, but told not to drink it unless the day's march was completed. Self-control in relation to water was a matter not just of life and death, but of military discipline. The men were instructed never to share their own water bottle with a friend. For in extremist situations, such such an act could create tensions that might explode in terrible ways. You've got to train your mind to carry the water and leave the damn stuff alone, they say. Such marches were not only demanding, but very ja- were very dangerous. Since Luz insisted that the desert treks be carried out with vehicle, medical, uh, without vehicle or medical or radio backup. If something went wrong, if the navigator miscalculated, if someone fell ill, the results might well be fatal. Above all, he sought to instill supreme physical stamina and self-confidence to make the men so inured to hardship that the reality, when it came, would feel almost easy. The confident man will win, Luz insisted. It's interesting, it's conditioning, it's toughening. Let's take these men to the very extreme and then in battle they'll just, they'll cope. Train hard, fight easy. Yeah. Brutal, and he tested it all on himself. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's amazing. That's leadership. Yeah, go first. There was some stuff they did was stupid. <clears throat> yeah, they used to chuck themselves out of a well, van. That's, that's what we're coming on to. Yeah, it's unbelievable. I'll just read this bit and we'll, we'll chew it over. Uh, back to the book. As for Luz himself, the discipline deprivation seemed to give him strength. He wrote, "I can keep going almost indefinitely on one cup of tea at breakfast." Mm and tea and one glass of water at lunch and supplemented by two or three oranges. (laughs) Training the men in parachuting 
was obviously of the first priority. Lacking any sort of formal parachuting experience, Luz took an experimental approach. <clears throat> he decided that jumping from the back of a moving vehicle would replicate the lateral and vertical movement of a parachute landing. It doesn't, but it is a very effective way to break bones. Luz, as ever, used himself as a dummy. First, he rolled forwards off the tailgate of a lorry moving at 15 miles an hour. Then he rolled backwards. Then he gradually increased the speed. Then he forced the men to do the same. One after another, they leaped into the desert at up to 35 miles per hour, mm. landing, or more often sprawling, in an explosion of dust and sand. Rudimentary protection was provided, strapping on some borrowed American baseball gear, including knee pads and helmets. Several men were injured, some quite badly, in what was less uh, in what was less a useful training exercise than a primitive test of nerve. Next, Luz devised a trolley that would hurtle downhill with a parachutist aboard before slamming into a buffer and hurling him out. By the end of the first week's training, one NCO recalled every man in the unit was sporting a bandage or plaster. Some were in splints. Finally, Sergeant Jim Almonds designed and built a wooden jumping platform, which was safer though not much. Very primitive equipment, locally constructed and no qualified instructors available. Now, I just find this fascinating that these guys... And as you, as you read on in the book, and you know you've looked through this book, you've read it, they go on to fine-tune these techniques. Uh, they go on to do some amazing missions and, and extreme conditions and obviously team up and, and they create like this long-range Land Rover group that just cover massive distances yeah. of desert. And they become effective in their art of killing and getting behind enemy lines and just creating as much yeah, disturbance yeah. as they can. So here's the interesting thing, mate. These guys look at as pioneers, don't we? We're chatting about this, this idea of these guys being willing to be test dummies and test theories and all this stuff and what the effects on me if I jump Break out their of this Yeah, amazing. But they were only there, they were they were taking part in this because someone had got them to that place, isn't it? Yeah, Sterling. So, you know, he's lying in his hospital bed and he paralysed after a parachuting accident. He actually yeah. only went parachuting for a laugh. Yeah. Didn't have a clue what he was doing. All went, he's just an adventure, isn't he? Yeah. Uh, all goes pear-shaped, lies in the hospital bed, partially paralysed, thinking, how do I take the fight to the enemy? And conceives the idea of a raiding group. Yeah. But everyone says no. Yeah. So he has to bang on doors, bang on doors, <coughs> persist, persist, persist. And eventually he gets his way, but even then they weren't formally recognised as their own unit. Yeah, they only got their their badge and their name after like they'd been proving themselves. But yeah. even on their first mission, it went pear shaped. And this is the interesting thing: like loads of them got killed and wiped out. Yeah, yeah. After even after all that training, it all just went it went south badly. Yeah, but he still hung in there and he's still pioneering. So yeah, I think yeah. you've got a group of people like Jock Lewis and others who are the early adopters because they of the vision. Yeah, well, they they think this is my outlet. This yeah. is what I've been looking for. But they're there because someone was prepared to push through and pioneer and, yeah. and head off the resistance and the aggravation and all the politics. And do you think do you think that type of character, the Sterling character, they do attract certain types of people? Yeah, the pioneers attract those implementers, yeah. if, if it well, were. There are very few pioneers out there, mm. I think. Uh, like, there's very few pioneer givers, donors to charities. People want to see something established for they give. There are very few people who want to 
quit their jobs and and believe in a vision they have for an idea and pioneer a business yeah you know there are very few people who want to found a charity but there are those people who get in when someone else takes the lead so yeah. sterling takes the lead he's prepared to stake his reputation and his safety uh to take the fight to the enemy yeah, yeah. then he attracts a certain group of people who are prepared to not have the structures and the the security and yeah. and and prepare to journey with high risk yeah yeah now uh i think in life uh or let's say in ministry um there'll be loads of blokes out there who've got an idea mm. or they believe god's spoken to them, but mm. how many of them are going to take the step mm. and those that do take the step they're going to face a tough challenge and they all need to get around them people are prepared to ride the storm with them yeah and take a few knocks and a few hits. Yeah. So that's what you got in these early guys. Yeah. They know they're probably going to get killed. Yeah, yeah. And they did, didn't they? Jock, Jock Lewis got killed, didn't he? Yeah. Explosion and... Yep. Yeah. Rogue heroes. So this this idea of, of the pioneer spirit, this idea of resilience, of not giving up, of getting a vision and saying, yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see this thing through. Yeah, we. I think it's fair to say that I feel like I've seen a decline of that. Yeah, in particularly in the circles that we're in, the church with guys, Christian men. Right, you kind of see a conformity rather than a pioneer spirit. There's this yeah. kind of apathy, or well, you know, what's what's missing? What's happening? Do you well, think? I don't know. Uh, maybe people want a quiet life. For me, I mean, I spent years pioneering things. I just hate being told what to do. Do you? <laughs> just that r- rogue in you? Yeah. Well, I, I, you know, it's not. Well, let's let's correct that slightly. I don't mind being told what to do in terms of, you know, there's a nation's men need to hear the gospel. Can you tell them? I'm like, that's telling me what to do. Yeah. Go and win men to Christ. Yeah. But don't tell me how to do it. Right. Let me work it out. Yeah, yeah. Now I've got to work this thing out, and I, I, I um, yeah, I'm submitted to Christ. Yeah. And I'm submitted, you know, to a board of trustees and thing. But I've got to go. I've got to go the way I feel is right. I don't like. I don't like conformity. Mm. And I think these guys, there are people who just have to break out the system. So, like I said earlier, a lot of these guys were in military prison. Yeah, you know, they were they were like drunks and misfits. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. But when you when you release them, then they get going. So yeah. I think the hallmark of a mature leader, or a mature pastor, or a mature business leader is they can handle mavericks and misfits. Right. But you got to find you got to unleash them in the right direction. Yeah. And there is there is a essential leadership ingredient there because you and I know the differences from leading a church to leading a, a movement is very different. Mm. When you, you come across different mindsets, different attitudes, it's yeah. same Christian people, but it's a different arena. And sometimes yeah. it can feel a bit unkingdom like. It can feel a little bit cutthroat, a little bit like because you're so focused on this is the vision, this is the pioneer, this is where I'm going, yeah. and these are the people I need get out of the way, I've to help to do me get, this. Yeah. God's called me, I've got to do it. Yeah, I need these people around but me to get it. Like get that. Done. Yeah, exactly. But when we... When you we go into a Google office, they're not going to be talking about Yahoo, are they? No, no. Google, 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 Google. Yeah. Google, Google, <laughs> Say Google. that fast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but do you know what I mean, though? Go, yeah. go, we're going to Apple HQ, yeah. they're not going to be promoting other people's products. No. It's all about Apple. Yeah. But it is relentless in that focus. If we go and do a CVM evening, everyone will want us to do talk about, oh, can I come and do a five minute on this? Yeah. Like, I'm trying to win a Christ here. Yeah. It's, it's our evening. Get in line. Yeah. But it's interesting. <laughs> but it's it? not the sub kingdom, is, is it? It's, but, but we're but doing our subtle thing. Voice. The yeah. subtle voice around the table says, well, that's not very kingdom. Yeah. But our we're kingdom kind of, focus we're is different. We're pioneering our thing. Yeah. 
We, you know, we, we recognise we're one piece of the jigsaw. We need to yeah. work in partnership. Yeah, which we, need, we do. We need everyone around the table. But yeah, yeah, it's difficult, isn't it? So, how do is, is a pioneer spirit something people just have, or let's yes. say someone hasn't yes. got it? No, I haven't got it. Really, That's it. you just haven't got it. No, you're just a conformer. No. <laughs> <laughs> but no, otherwise we'd all no one would be no one would be a worker would they right no one would be a you know you need team a facilitator and facilitators and so, yeah, yeah, yeah. people cheering you on and yeah. people with gifts of operations yeah. and, who believe in the vision yeah but I think you're either a pioneer or you're not mm. it's interesting I've tried not to be a pioneer mm. don't work no. do you think people can do pioneering things even if they're not pioneers no. <laughs> Thanks for listening. <laughs> of course I can. What, well, like, like what? Like coming up with initiatives, like coming up with an idea, or you know, they mm. see a need in their community and say, "No one's what doing I've it." What I found is, I'm going to do it. People, yeah, yeah, but they're pioneered, then, aren't they? If you've seen a gap and mm. you you blaze a trail, then you are a pioneer. That is actually a pioneer spirit. Yeah. yeah. What I found is that most, mostly what happens is if I think of it, anything new and fresh, people come and go and they talk in a very certain way. Mm. You can't go and do that. <laughs> you ain't got health and safety rules and you ain't got a budget. I mean, what, you need a risk assessment. Yeah. And they, they, like, it pulls you down. They yeah. all talk like that. Yeah. And it, and it, and it drags you back. Yeah. But what you need is say, look, just give me space to let this idea breathe. Mm. And then, and then let's see what we need. Mm. But what you find is that you so a pioneer will have an idea. Mm. He needs to surround himself with cheerleaders mm. and early adopters. But mm. then there'll be the voices of dissent. Mm. The true pioneer will push through and ultimately take people with them against all the odds and against complaint mm. and against criticism. Mm. So you get loads of criticism. Those who are not pioneers will roll over and give in. Yeah, because they can't handle the confrontation or yeah, the yeah. complaint or the critique. So in fact, so in a cold light, looking at facts, let's mm-hmm. let's transpose that model over to Jesus, mm-hmm. pioneer, early adopters, well, the uh, disciples, and somehow he, without force, he was able to, wasn't he? He was able to. I suppose there are compelling miracles and yeah. uh, incredible wisdom. Yeah. And people are, are buying to that, yeah. but not everyone did. No, he had his. And, then what, and yeah. the Pharisees are like, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, look, he's doing that on his hand. Why is he saying that? He's, he's a wine bibber, yeah, yeah. he's a friend of sinners. Yeah, yeah. but he, you know he's pioneering, isn't he? So yeah. that you see exactly the same thing. You get it with Nehemiah. Yeah, Nehemiah looks at the walls of Jerusalem. Fifty-two days he cracked it. Yeah, but Sam Ballett's there going, <coughs> we can't do that. and everyone's whinging and moaning mm. and. But he builds a team, he gets the right people around him, he gets the job done. It's a miracle prayer and action, yeah. Nehemiah. So what we're saying is, if there's a pioneer amongst us, get around them. Find out what your, Cheer on. What your well, bit is. If to you don't, they'll go and do it anyway. Yeah. A true pioneer will go and do it anyway. Yeah. But if we can harness that and find our place in supporting that vision or that yeah. movement. Well, I've pioneered loads of things. And uh, planted churches and tried to set up little businesses and all sorts yeah. of stuff. And I normally find there'll be those who cheer you on and there'll be a lot of negative voices. Mm. And sometimes you have to make very decisive decisions and not everyone understands, but you know it's the right call. Mm. And you have to be prepared to stand on your own and gather team around you. Mm. It's a lonely place. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, like I said, a mature leader or mentor will release the maverick and not try and make them conform. Mm. 
the pioneer. And it's interesting because these fellas in the book that rallied round the vision, the call, the pioneer, they were just as needed though, weren't they? They were the, the blokes that were planting the bombs on the planes and yeah. You know, they had their role, they had their part. There's this fantastic video, <clears throat> I think it's on YouTube, of David Sterling with a bunch of all those guys who right. were there with him in the war and they're now old men. Yeah. Sitting around the table having dinner. And they seem so gentle and nice. Really? Yeah. Amazing, huh? Yeah. Anyway, it's a good but they've book. they've still got a glint in their eye. Yeah. I like it. Because I, I, I do look at the early disciples and they were... They were just renegades, weren't they? Lots of them. They didn't understand. They came up with ridiculous things. Well, and it's fascinating, isn't it? Because in any team of pioneers, you'll always get the voice of dissent that tries to wreck it. In that yeah. case, it was Judas, wasn't it? Yeah. Or the people who have the moral crumble like Peter, but they yeah. get restored. Yeah. Um, it's a bumpy road being a pioneer. Yeah. But I guess what we're saying is, if you're a bloke out there and you've got an idea from God or something that's stirring in you, yeah. go for it. Yeah but get your head down be prepared for the bumpy ride yeah. and and to the blokes who see that fella standing up and, and pushing forward is get to around get him. around him and see see yeah. what your part in that is and if you've got this sort of voice shut up yeah shut up <laughs> <laughs> uh, don't do it just don't do it yeah cheer him on get alongside him and say hey fella you thought about this I've got and I've got a solution yeah that's what we need Give me a solution. Get involved. Get your hands dirty. (laughs) But it's a thoroughly recommended book by Ben McIntyre, Rogue Heroes. SAS, Rogue Heroes. We need to read more from that uh, as we go through these various podcasts, I think. There we go. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.